Well, good morning, everyone. Let me invite you to keep your Bibles open and let's come to the Lord in prayer as we seek His understanding in His Word. Let's pray together. How gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, a new day where we get to gather in this way to worship you, to gather to know about you. Uh, Our Lord and God, for some of us, this is um, our first time back in church for a very long time. Uh, And so, dear Lord, we ask that we would meet with you and experience you as your word is read and preached today. Uh, Stir our hearts and deepen our love for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I just wanted to welcome all of you once again to our Good Friday service. And I especially want to welcome those who don't usually come along to Grace Point, whether you're a friend or a family member, one of our regulars. We're so glad that you're here. And as Clement mentioned a bit earlier, we have a bit of an odd theme for this service. It's called Celebrating Death. Uh, And I'm sure that you find it odd partly because we do not usually associate death with celebrations. Uh, Birthdays, anniversaries, graduations, sure, let's celebrate. But when we think of death, uh, we often feel like our weather today outside. It's um, there's grief, there's anxiety, and there's often despair. Or sometimes when we think of death, we think of indifference or we think of apathy. Now, I want you to realize that grief, despair, and anxiety are extremely common emotional responses to death. The the thought of losing a loved one can crush us. The thought of leaving our loved ones behind can cripple us. Uh, But you know, there's also indifference or apathy. It basically says, I don't really care about death, or or the idea of death doesn't really bother me. Uh, What I find interesting among those who feel indifferent and apathetic about death It's not that they actually don't care. Instead, sometimes their indifference is because of ignorance. So maybe they haven't really thought about it. And that's very common among young people. That just seems so far away. Or perhaps their indifference could be a defense mechanism. A defense mechanism to stop them from feeling grief, despair, and anxiety. It could be a form of denial. You see, friends, at the heart of all of these common responses is actually a fear of death. At the heart of all of these common responses is actually a fear of death. It's actually built into us. Uh, The American psychologist Jeffrey Miller says this in your outlines. He says, there is no way to escape the hardwired fears and reactions that motivate humans to avoid death. He says, suffocate me and I'll struggle, shoot me and I'll scream. The brainstem and the amygdala will always do their job of struggling to preserve one's life at any point cost. That's the evolutionary psychologist Jeffrey Miller. There is a fear of death of our loved ones, but there is also a fear of our own death. Now you see, as a culture, we don't really talk about death. Death makes us feel uncomfortable. It makes us feel uneasy. It makes us feel unsettled. I love it, right? Whenever I tell people I'm the pastor of Grace Point and they go, where is that? I said, across the cemetery. Everyone goes, ooh, that's a bit scary, isn't it, right? We've sanitized death as a culture and maybe that sanitization reinforces our common fear of death. Maybe it just shows us that we don't really want to think about it. We'd rather not deal with it. But you see, it's a bit silly to avoid that topic, isn't it? I mean, We realize we prepare for most things in life, don't we? Why would we shy away from that which is unavoidable? It's probably because whether we like to admit it or not, we are scared of death. The good news of the Christian faith, indeed the good news of Good Friday, is that we actually need not fear death. 
we don't have to fear death. Because understood rightly, death is not the end of something good, but the beginning of something greater. Death is not the end of something good. It is the beginning of something greater. But it doesn't make it easy, does it? It doesn't make it easy. And you know, the Bible is surprisingly transparent and honest about this fear. If you have the outlines, let me invite you to turn to point one with me. What we realize is that the Bible is not so otherworldly that it is insensitive to real human fears. If you have your uh, passages open, let me invite you to turn to verses 16 to 18. Now, in terms of content, if you glance your eyes through it, these verses are recounting the manner in which Jesus was handed over to be crucified. This is actually what Good Friday is about. That's the heart of it. It is about Jesus dying on the cross to pay the price for our sin. That's what makes Good Friday good. It's not the celebrations. It's not the family. It is Christ. Because of sin, because of our rebellion against God, every single one of us is deserving of God's judgment and rejection. That's the price. God's judgment for our rejection against Him is death. And perhaps that's what makes death so terrifying, that we see it as a form of judgment. Yet because of God's love and grace, every single one of us can be redeemed because Jesus bore the judgment and rejection in our place. In other words, Jesus died in our place. He paid the penalty and price for our place so that by trusting in Jesus, we receive justification rather than judgment. We receive redemption rather than rejection. We receive grace rather than guilt. We receive eternal life rather than eternal death. That's what makes Good Friday Great that you and I can be forgiven, that our past does not define us, that our futures in Christ are incredibly bright. So that's verses 16 to 18, right? Jesus is being handed over to be killed. But I want you to notice something, right? There is a very subtle, chilling and cold way that Jesus' execution is described. You blink and you'll miss it, right? But verse 16 tells us this, that Jesus was handed over. Another way of saying that is that Jesus was delivered over to death. There is actually a violent and oppressive tone here that is very easy to miss. I want you to imagine a parallel image, right? It's when someone hands an animal over to a butcher to be slaughtered. That's what we're meant to be thinking about, right? It is messy, it is inhumane, it is a cold-blooded affair. And this scene, handed over, is meant to conjure this up within our imaginations. It's not a sanitized activity. It's a sheep led to the slaughter. That's effectively what happened to Jesus. And as you read this, we're meant to feel, feel deep within our bones, a looming sense of dread and threat. Maybe it's so good that it's raining and dark and gloomy outside. We're meant to feel this about death, right? And so the rest of the verse tells us that the soldiers took charge of Jesus. The soldiers, they're the butchers. And look at your Bibles with me. Their method of slaughter is by crucifying Jesus. But I want you to notice something. Before they do that, they first get Jesus to carry his own cross. Now, it may be helpful to recognize that this was a standard ancient practice, right? If you studied ancient history, you'll know that condemned criminals were forced to carry their crossbeams to the place of crucifixion. And you know this act of carrying is actually punishment in and of itself already. Crossbeams were heavy. 
Uh, it's like deadlifting, but something very, very heavy. It's, it's hundreds and hundreds of kilograms. And, and criminals were often, as Clem said, beaten and bruised before they made this journey with crossbeams on their shoulders. They had to carry a heavy load with broken bodies already. It's a terrible punishment in and of itself. But what's more, this journey was also designed to shame. There's a, there's a piercing psychological effect to this, right? Because criminals would have to make this walk of shame in an extremely public fashion where people could visibly see them. And often, as they were doing this march, the people watching by would mock them, would shame them, would make fun of them. It was a parade of shame. And you see, this public march was actually meant to damage someone psychologically. The Romans had it nailed down pat, right? Physical damage is bad, but psychological damage is worse. They built it into their punishment. Because I want you to realize, right, this march here is like digging your own grave. They are literally walking closer and closer to their own death. Every step that they take is bringing them closer to the place of crucifixion. There is a deeply psychologically damning effect of carrying one's own cross to their own crucifixion. That's intentional. I want you to notice something, right? The Bible writers built this in. To remind us that death is terrifying. But here's one more, right? The place where Jesus will be crucified is called the place of the skull. Now, I don't know about you, right? But that's a really ominous and gloomy name for a place, right? You know, a lot of hotels and resorts, they're called the paradise, right? Or popular cruise liners, right? Royal Caribbean or Carnival Cruises, right? All of these names are meant to give you the impression that this is going to be a happy and carefree place. That's what you pay for, right? So when a place is called the place of the skull, you know something's up, right? You know it's not going to be a fun and uh, free-flowing drinks place. It's actually a place where people go to die. And what's very interesting about all of these details is that it helps to reinforce that death is a terrifying thing. All of this climaxes in the act of crucifixion itself. It was the most public, cruel, and gruesome way to die. There are no euphemisms for crucifixions. It is as bad as they say it is. And, and friends, these verses help us to feel the weight of death. The Bible recognizes that we face death with a sense of helplessness, and it's not surprising that we fear it. Let me ask you a question. Why do we fear death? Why is it that when we hear sirens like this, our anxiety's level begin to rise? There is a fear that is built into us that responds to these things in, in a very nervous manner. Why is it? Now, some people argue it's not death that we fear. Some people argue it's the pain of death that we fear. They say it's the physical pain that we're afraid of, and that's certainly true, right? The thought of dying a slow death from a car crash, that's a, uh, there was a major car crash in Lidcombe just earlier this week, if you read the news, and, and the driver was caught in the seat for hours. And, and the, the thought that someone could die in that scenario, and the pain associated with that, you go, wow, that... That's terrible. The thought of falling off a cliff, that's like, that's a fear from like childbirth, right? Like you wake up from nightmares, from, from that kind of stuff. It, it, it's terrifying. The, the, I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu, right? 
and, and you choke people to death, right? And there is this violent part within you that's just trying to fight it because you just think, I, I, I need to breathe. I, I cannot die. We're scared of that. But, but I, want you, I want you to realize that there's actually something more to that. We're afraid, but we're afraid of more than the pain of death, at least more than the physical pain of death. I think we're afraid of death because there's a part of us that is concerned with the reputations that we leave behind. There is a part of us that is concerned about the reputations we leave behind. There's a part of us that's asking, what will I be remembered for when I die? And those of us who are honest enough will realize that this question haunts us more than we like to admit. Will my life amount to anything? Will I just be forgotten? You see, friends, there is a pain of living a life of no consequence. There is a pain of living a life of no consequence. Maybe some of you have done this activity before, maybe at a work team building activity, maybe a church leadership development day. The activity is called the tombstone activity. Have you heard of that before? The tombstone activity. The exercise is that you, you sit down and you think about what you like to stand for when you die. In, in this activity, you're asked to write down what you want written on your tombstone when you die, right? Uh, and there are very common things, aren't there, right? Uh, for me, you know, loving husband, caring father, pious son, jiu-jitsu world champion, right? These are the things I want on my tombstone, right? And the idea is that you write these things down and then you begin to reverse engineer your life to make that happen. So if it's my desire to be a loving husband, then what do I need to do now to make it happen? If it's to be a caring father, a pious son, to be a champion, what changes do I need to make to my life now so that that tombstone can be a reality? People don't just write whatever they want on tombstones. There has to be some degree of truth. We need to work for it. Now, uh, this is actually a very fun and sobering activity. Maybe you can try this tonight, something to kill time. In fact, um, the news outlet Business Insider says that this exercise is the secret to being successful. Wow, amazing, right? It helps us to imagine our future and to start planning for it now. But as I describe this activity, I suspect that most of us don't have to do the exercise to feel the impact of this activity. How will I be remembered? What sort of claims have I made about my life? What have I done that is of any consequence at all? The issue of reputation and consequence is not unique to our time. Read John 19 verses 17 to 24 with me. And you'll see that it was a similar concern for Jesus' time. We notice that Jesus crucified on the cross and his reputation is written. It's fastened on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's what he was known for. Now notice this in inscription in verse 19. It is absolutely charged with meaning, right? Firstly, it tells us why Jesus was crucified. His crime was one of sedition. It's treason. He claimed to be king while technically in an earthly sense, Caesar was king. But second of all, it shows us who Jesus really, really is. Because you see, what's interesting is that the general public, they loved Jesus as a teacher, as a philosopher, as a doctor, healer, and maybe they would even love him as a savior. 
No one had any issues with that. But what Jesus repeatedly told his crowds is that he is all of that, but he is more. He is king. He is the Lord who demands their allegiance. We can't just take him as teacher and discard everything else about him. We either accept him wholeheartedly or reject him wholeheartedly. And one of his chief claims is that he is Lord. He is king, the one who possesses all authority under heaven and earth to whom we are called to respond with humility to. The one whom all kings of earth bow down to. That's what the people of his time chose to reject about Jesus. Interestingly enough, it's the same reason why people today reject Jesus. You see, almost no one has a problem with Jesus being the teacher of a better way to life. Jesus as a self-help coach, no one has any troubles with that. And you know what? No one even has a problem with Jesus as a personal savior. If I say that Jesus can forgive you, you go, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good idea. I'll come along to church on Good Friday. But Jesus as king and Lord over your life. You see, if Jesus was around today, he'd be crucified for the very same thing. Because you and I want to rule our own lives even though they constantly lead to the path of destruction. That's the heart of sin. And the gospel tells us that Jesus doesn't just come to save us from the path of destruction. He saves us onto a path of righteousness, a life of flourishing. Jesus is king. But thirdly, it shows us something very powerful. It tells us that all of us leave behind a reputation when we die. The question is, what would that reputation be? Now, you see, the governor Pilate and the Jewish leaders had this sign hung above Jesus ironically. It was meant to be a joke. It was a sign of mockery. But we know behind every joke there is an element of truth to it, right? That's why some burns hurt more than others. There's too much truth there. And for Jesus, he was mockingly labeled the king of the Jews because people didn't believe he was king. That's the point. But he was also labeled as the king because his entire life embodied that of a king. So there was a cognitive dissonance going on there. Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. He healed and he lived as one possessing the authority of a king. He himself claimed himself to be Lord. That's his reputation. It's based on what's observable in his earthly life. And you know, these questions of reputation are particularly relevant in a world and culture like ours, which values earthly accomplishments based on what we do. That's the air we breathe. These accomplishments are a symbol of our success, and by extension, our accomplishments reflect our status and our identity. We feel so connected to what we've accomplished in life. And you know, the thought of leaving it all behind is terrifying. Or perhaps what's worse than leaving our accomplishments behind is having no accomplishments to leave behind. And so we spend our entire lives working, searching, laboring, building so that we may be remembered for something. And once we have it, we spend our lives working, searching, laboring, building so that we can secure it, we can protect it, so that no one can take that away from us so that we may never be forgotten. I'm not sure if you've noticed this, right? But this is an incredibly dangerous and destructive way to live. This approach forces us to sum up our entire lives in just a few sentences. 
And those sentences are built on what we've accomplished. Are you prepared to be reduced to just a few words? But you know, it's also remarkably selfish and self-centered. Because it also means that we often pursue success and accomplishments for our own sakes. We do things to be seen rather than to serve. And if no one will acknowledge what we do, goodness, I won't even touch that. We look good for the camera. We look good for the applause. And I want you to notice something. It's, it, it's subhuman to live this way. It is a soul-sucking, soul-wrecking way to live. And so unsurprisingly, there is a deep anxiety and a deep fear connected to living this way because we know that our accomplishments are fragile, so thin. They are fragile because what seems like accomplishments right now may mean nothing to you in five years or may mean nothing to the person sitting next to you right now. I was moving houses um, about a year ago and I was going through old trophies, right? Trophies that were so proud of back then that I lost sleep over. And now I look at it and I go, where do I even put this? There's something terrifying about that. Accomplishing something is good, but accomplishing something of no consequence. You spend your entire lives working for it. And what? If you think back on your life right now and all the accomplishments you've built, at that point, that was incredible. But you look back now, but what's worse? When you show it off to someone else, people look at them and go, yeah, good on you. And that's it. Did you realize how fragile that is? They're also fragile because your accomplishments today can be overshadowed by your failures tomorrow. You are only as good as your last win and your last success. And so there is fear. (laughs) What if I die not having accomplished what I set out to accomplish? What if I die, but I make a mistake at the end and I undo absolutely everything? I mean, we know of politicians, right, who have a clean record in their last three years. One or two scandals undo three, four decades of work. And we look at that and we go, man, our world is cruel, yo. That is the world that we live in. What if I die and no one saw what I did? What if no one acknowledges what I've done? What if no building is named after me? Death is that final buzzer that says your time is up. What do I have to show for it? But there's more, isn't there? Part of our fear of death is also connected to the pain of losing deep and intimate relationships. It's not just reputation now, it's relationships. That's what we see in verses 25 to 30. Look at uh, verses 25 to 30 with me. Jesus is about to die by way of crucifixion for the sins of the world, but along the way, he sees his mother. Remember, the journey to the cross was a very public affair, so his mother would have been watching this entire thing unfold before her eyes, right? So mom's in his room. Imagine your child marching to his or her own death. It's, it's, it's terrible. Now, Jesus sees his mother, and he immediately wells up with concern and care. So what does he do? He grabs his disciple, John. Jesus brings John before his mother and says, Mom, look at him. He is your son now. And then Jesus turns to John and says to John, John, my mother is your mother now. No more your mom jokes, right? This is your mom now. Now, of course, when you think about it, this makes sense for at least two reasons, okay? 
Firstly, in an ancient culture where social welfare was non-existent, your children were your retirement plans. They were your superannuation. Children were expected to live beyond their parents and to care for them till their death. But Jesus, son of Mary, was about to die. He could not fulfill his obligation to his mother, so he asked his disciple to do it in his place. That's why verse 27, if you read very carefully, it says, from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. In other words, from then on, John looked after Jesus' mother's needs, gave her a place to stay, food to eat, friendship and company. That was the arrangement. But second of all, I hope you see how incredibly human how incredibly raw this entire encounter is. I just find it stunning that God in his wisdom saw it fit to include this little detail in Holy Scripture. There is something about the simplicity and the urgency of the language that shows us Jesus' care for his mother. In the original language, Jesus' instructions to his mother in verse 26 has five words. It's literally this. You're ready. Five words. Woman, look this is your son, right? It's, it's contracted together. Just a couple of words. Jesus' instruction to John in verse 27 has similarly very short few words. It literally says, look, this is your mother. The word look is often lost in our English translations. Maybe in the ESV it has the word behold, and, and it's a similar idea. And it's a pity that this word is lost because there is an urgency here that communicates love. Jesus knew his death would be the loss of deep and intimate relationships, and that concerned him. That's probably the pain we feel the most when it comes to death. The loss of a loved one to death is a profoundly painful experience. Those of you who have lost a spouse, a parent, a friend, a sibling, a niece, a nephew, or maybe even your own child, those of you who have lost someone to death will know the sort of piercing agony that I'm talking about. It's an anguish that no words can describe. It's an affliction that no amount of tears can capture. It's an agony that no experience in this world can compare to. There is a heaviness to that that no one wants to talk about. Sadness is the soul's measure of what matters to us. And it's natural, isn't it? We fear losing the people we love. It's right to feel that way. And I'm sure some of you right now miss your loved ones so, so much as you think of them. And you know what? Sometimes the worst thing about losing someone is that we lose them without having any notice. Losing someone we love with notice is hard enough, right? A grandmother in palliative care, a father fighting cancer for many years, child born with degenerative disease. That we sort of expect that. We prepare our hearts for that. And there's a part of us that breathes a sigh of relief knowing that their pain and suffering is no more. It's hard, but our hearts prepared for it. Uh, but losing someone we love without notice is almost like experiencing death for ourselves. That phone call you did not expect and the phone call you wish you never received. That moment when somebody said to you, you should sit down for this. Or the second you walked into that room and your whole life turned upside down. 
Those memories are etched deep within your memory, and sometimes it's etched so deep that your brain works hard to cover it up for you, to protect you from remembering it. Death is scary. That's what 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says. Death is the final enemy to be destroyed. It's like the boss level. It's the greatest of all enemies. And we get that, don't we? But when someone we love dies, you see, we realize that we don't just lose them. When they die, we lose a part of ourselves. I know a mother who was never the same after her son passed away. He was only about 18 years old when he died. Absolute tragedy. And there was a particular laugh from that mother that was never heard again. It was a laugh that only her son could bring out of her. And that laugh left the world when her son passed away. Our world now has one less tone of laughter because of death. I know friendship groups that break apart from the death of a loved one. I know marriages that fall apart because of the death of a child. I know families that crumble because of the death of someone in the household. It doesn't always have to be like this. Death doesn't always have to tear things apart. It can sometimes bring people together. Sometimes death is that shock that requires us to rethink our lives and to ask what really matters. But I think we can all recognize that part of us dies when our loved one dies. So that though we live and remain, we become less because of someone else's death. We lose a part of ourselves. We don't feel annoyed the same way because that sibling who annoys us is no longer around. We no longer cook the same way because the child who wants that dish is no longer around. We no longer drive to the same shops because the parent who insists on shopping there, even though it's old school and expensive, is no more. The roads we drive on, the music we listen to, the movies we watch, the food we eat, even our experiences of the changing seasons are different now. By losing someone we love, we lose a part of ourselves. And unsurprisingly and rightfully, we're terrified. But there's one more fear, isn't there? In the back of our minds, we ask this very simple yet subtle question. Will anyone miss me when I die? Will I have left enough of a mark on people around me that they will feel my absence? Or will they move on like my life didn't even matter to them? All my investments in people, all my efforts, all my love, does it disintegrate at my last breath or will it count for something? Uh, Friends, I hope you see that part of the reason we fear death is because it is unnatural. It is unnatural. It is an intrusion on natural order. You and I were not created to die in the Garden of Eden. Death was introduced because of sin. But don't you see, friends, that's why we celebrate death on Good Friday. Because the death we celebrate is not our death. It is the death of Jesus that reverses the effects of our death. Friends, the message of the Christian faith is that it is through Jesus' death that we have life. The reason death exists is because of sin. But in Christ, we have forgiveness, we have redemption, we have renewal, and therefore the effects of death can be reversed. So that though we may die a physical death, we await a future life where the stinging effects of death are no more. 
We celebrate the death of Christ because it is through his death that we have life. It is by his stripes that we are healed. That's why, brothers and sisters, the promise of forgiveness in the Christian faith is both new life and eternal life. It is both new life and eternal life. The new life we have in Christ now is the life now where we experience the peace and the hope and the joy of being reconciled to God. A life where even the greatest enemy death has no hold on us, that we are free from that. And the eternal life we have in Christ is a future promised life where sin and death will be no more. That which terrifies us the most has lost its sting. The promise of the gospel, therefore, is that this earthly death is not the end of something good, but the beginning of something greater. It's for all who trust in Jesus. So I want to reflect on a few implications for us this Good Friday. It's in your outlines. Firstly, it's this. It means that those who trust in Jesus can be freed from the fear of death. Now, I'm not sure you realize how powerful this is. But I want to firstly be sensitive about this. Because I do not want to give you the impression that all is well and good with Christians when it comes to death. It does not mean that we suddenly become happy in the face of death. That's near insanity. Nor does it mean that we no longer feel the sting and the sadness of death. We feel that. We don't become stoics, right? We don't become numb. Death continues to be a painful experience because loss, grief, and suffering is real. But you see, Christians can have a different sort of hopeful confidence in the face of death because we know that death does not have the last word. If you are in Christ, if you trust in Jesus, then this life is the prelude, is the introduction to the eternal life that is to come. And friends, we have a sense of eternity etched deep within our hearts, don't we? We all often feel a sense that this world is not what it's meant to be. Surely things are meant to be better. I just don't fit in. Maybe there has to be more. We, we, we feel that to different degrees. Uh, the author C.S. Lewis felt the same way when he says this, this is in your outlines. He says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. C.S. Lewis here is speaking of eternity. That's what Christians look forward to with a deep sense of hope and anticipation by trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, by humbly accepting Jesus as your God and King. We can begin to see that death is not the end of something good, but the beginning of something greater. It's when the all-satisfying God is ours forevermore. So if you're here today and you are not a Christian, I'd love to offer this invitation of the freedom of death to you through the gospel. Dear friend, death no longer has to cripple you if you trust in Jesus. You don't have to deny it. You don't have to run from it. You can face it with a deep sense of hopeful confidence, not naivety, not ignorance, but facing it as a reality that is inescapable but deliverable because forgiveness, redemption, and new life is found in Jesus. Now, of course, there is so much more that we can't explore this morning. And maybe the next steps for you is not to say, okay, I believe. Maybe that's too big of a step for you. Perhaps the next step for you is to keep having a bit of an open mind, asking questions and keep coming along. 
You know, you know, I believe that part of being convinced of the power of the gospel is not just to hear it preached up here, but to see it lived right where you're at. I'm convinced that spending some time with us and hearing about this from up here, but also stories from people sitting next to you will show you the power of the gospel. But you know, this morning, I also want to pause and I want to acknowledge those who are really hurting as we think about the death of our loved ones. And I want to encourage you and give you some space to grieve today. And as you do that, I pray that the gospel would be a balm to your soul today, especially as you think of your loved one who is in Christ. The message of Good Friday is what makes it possible, in the words of 1 Thessalonians, to grieve, but to also grieve with a deep sense of hope. You see, the depth of your grief is a witness to the expanse of your love. So as you remember your father, your mother, your grandparent, your son, your daughter, your niece, your nephew, your friend, as you remember them who have passed away, I want you today to remember them well. To not bury it, to not pretend like it never happened, to embrace it. And if you know that they are in Christ, then be sure, be confident that your mourning and your grief will be turned into dancing and joy in Christ. For they are no longer perishing, but are more alive than ever. They are with Christ and death has been defeated for them. But if your heart continues to feel heavy, I want to Uh, give you more opportunities to process this. I encourage you after the service to come up and I'd love to pray with you and talk to you and keep applying the gospel of hope and comfort to you. Good Friday frees us from the fear of death. Second of all, here's what's interesting. Our freedom from the fear of death is not just an abstract, hypothetical thing to make us feel good. Some people may be objecting to that, right? Isn't this just some sort of things that Christians come up with to help us deal with the world? Maybe. But maybe there's more. Maybe this year begins to help us to make sense of our lives right now. The tombstone activity does something right. It says how we think about death impacts the way we think about life. That's a powerful idea. It's rooted in Scripture. How we think about our eternity helps us to think about what's temporary right now. Because you see, there is a deep impulse within us to accomplish things in life. There is an ambition, there's a drive, there's a hunger, there's an entrepreneurial spirit that nothing can quench, nothing can put aside. There is a sense of satisfaction and joy that comes from accomplishing something, from building something from nothing. I want you to realize that achievement and ambition are not bad things. But perhaps we now see the problem is that our fear of death makes our accomplishments and achievements about ourselves. Here's the paradox. If our ambitions is for ourselves, it will always be limited. If all I want to do is in order to be seen, then I will actually accomplish less in life. Perhaps ironically, by living for ourselves, we live lesser lives. There is no higher purpose, no higher reason. Brothers and sisters, true ambition is actually about others. True accomplishment, accomplishments that lasts, is about serving others. 
The problem is we often make accomplishments and ambitions an end unto itself, and in doing so, we settle for second best. Church, I wonder if you see that since death has lost its grip on us, we can be truly, we can be rightly ambitious. We can accomplish things in this life not to be seen, but to serve. We can accomplish things in this life to really contribute and not to find a sense of approval from others who will give us a clap or who will name something after us, who will pat us on the back. Our freedom from the fear of death makes it possible to be released from the shackles of people's expectations and do what's right and what's good. You see, we are not defined by what's written on our tombstones. And in doing so, we are surprisingly liberated to pursue ambition for the sake of others. We can build robust careers. We can invest wisely. We can build healthy relationships and networks. We can love our families rightly. We can make a mark in society not to be seen, but to serve. We can do it even when it's hard. Even when there's no immediate reward. Even when no one claps and applauds us. It's not about us. Freedom from the fear of death surprisingly makes us human again. It makes living not about us, but about others. You see, God made us in His image to love and to serve, to rule over His creation. The promise of eternal life in Christ makes it possible to do this for God's glory and for our joy. Let me give you one point to ponder as you think about this, right? How will you use your short life on this earth to influence and serve others? If you're a Christian, this is actually a question you can wrestle with. How will you use your short life on this earth, be it 8, 18, 28, 80, 100 years, to influence and to serve others? You know, part of the joy and satisfaction that God promises is when we spend it building others up. Being freed from the threat of death enables us to do that in a strategic and sacrificial way. I want you to come along this Sunday as I expand more on this as we think about resurrection purpose. Lastly then, our fear from the fear of death actually enables us to love properly, to pursue deep relationships, not for a sense of security, but with the hope of eternity. Here's something you have to realize. Most relationships break apart because we try to make it about ourselves. We enter into a friendship, and when the other person doesn't give me what I want, friendship falls apart. It's the same with marriages. We enter it with such hopes and dreams, but when the other person doesn't satisfy my need, conflict begins to arise. So many arguments and conflict actually begin because there is something that I long for which is not being satisfied in this relationship. It's not always the case. But when we examine the rubble of our conflicts, we may be surprised that selfishness is often the spark that blew everything up. We try to make that relationship about me. And you know, we do this when we are afraid that we're not going to get what we want. So we try to grab, we try to hold, we try to hoard. The message of Good Friday is that all that we could ever want and need is found in Jesus. An intimate and fulfilling relationship that knows no end, a life of meaning that goes on to eternity. I don't need the other person to be Jesus for me. All I have is Christ, and Christ is mine forevermore. And church, I want us to realize this is the foundation for self-sacrificial love and relationships. We are able to give because of the abundance of what we already have. 
the phoenix is an immortal bird from Greek mythology. It's not just a Chinese restaurant in Rhodes, right? Uh, phoenixes actually don't exist. But it's captured the imagination of almost every culture on earth. Whether it's Greek or Roman or Chinese, almost every ancient culture has a phoenix of some sort. It may look different. But this was made especially popular through the Harry Potter series. And those of you who've read or watched the series will know that Forks is Albus Dumbledore's pet. And in the movie, there is a scene in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets where Forks the phoenix bursts into flames and it arises from the ashes anew. And those watching it stare with amazement and wonder, like, wow, isn't that great? Uh, Most watching the scene unfold have this instinctive desire within them that says, wouldn't it be great if this could be true? That death is not the end. That newness of life is possible. That life can come from the ashes. That decay is not permanent. That brokenness can be reversed and restored. You see, the genius of the mythical phoenix and the reason it continues to grip our hearts across generations is that it taps into a deep human impulse for death to be no more. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the hope of Good Friday. And that's why we celebrate the death of Christ today. Because for those who trust in Jesus, death is not the end of something good, but the beginning of something greater. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is not just a nice historical fact to behold, but a life-changing reality to embrace. And so, our Lord and God, we ask that you, by your Spirit, will continue to apply these truths deep within our hearts that we will see death as an enemy, but an enemy that has been conquered through Christ. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.